go sack. It's going to be very loud this week. <laughs> then this probably isn't the way to start because they'll turn it up and then I'll put in a sample and it'll be like, fuck! That's <laughs> what I was hoping for. <laughs> yes, welcome. Um, it's just the two of us again. That's that's the best. That's the best. That's the best. Yeah, I hate going out in the street and try to rope people into doing a podcast. I know. You just never know what you're going to get. Exactly. Some rascal passing by that'll do anything for a drink or a hand job or Dave. <laughs> Both of those. <laughs> yes. Um, so, should we get some admin out of the way first before we start? We always have admin because we always need money. Um, yes. Well, by the time this comes out, we'll be getting ready to go to the post box with our lovely vinyls. Vinyl. There's no plural of vinyl. <laughs> for our lovely vinyl for our paid subscribers. Is that definitive? There, are, there is no plural of vinyl. Yeah. It's like sheep or deer. That's one of the most endearing mistakes made by non-English speakers, <laughs> is when they say sheeps. Yeah. <laughs> it's fucking lovely, man. I just want to hug them to death. I can't remember the name for it, but I was discussing it with my, with, with my brother recently. Uh, we were just like, well, why couldn't they just said sheeps or vinyls? Or, there's probably some reason as to Because they were why. setting the scene for that endearing mistake. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but a vinyl has become a thing in kind of common parlance, hasn't it? So, mm. yeah, I brought my old vinyls. That's common usage, isn't it? It is, yes, uh-huh. Yeah. But Let's make it right. Yeah. Uh, but yes, uh, we have a, a bunch of lovely records that we're going to give away again this month, including for the digital subscribers, which is everybody basically who's on the tier, some really cool hip-hop that we're getting from me. Finally. Finally, yeah, from Australia. We cracked it. Mm-hmm. Australian hip-hop. Yeah, featuring a, a friend of the pod as well. Um, he's not the rapper. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so that's basically all goes to say that we still have a record club running um, and we thank everybody who's already a subscriber to that record club. We would like some more. Donations can start at $4 or £4 or 4 of whatever your local currency is per month. Donations can start at just 4 Just 4 Just, just four. 4 4 of whatever. <laughs> 4 pints. New Israeli shekels. <laughs> 4. Yen. 4. 4. Oh, 4. Sheeps. 4. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so it starts at four, just four, and you get access to our, our amazing Facebook group, early access to all episodes, bonus content when we get around to it. That group, by the way, gives you the power to influence the podcast. It really does. We do interact in that. We get some pretty good posts in that. We get a lot of shite in that. Mm-hmm. We occasionally write a lot of shite in that. But it means that if there's something that's on your mind, we're going to see it. And there's a very good chance that we'll make a note of it if it's worthwhile and it will come up at some point. And that's that's happened on a, on a few occasions now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it has. Um, a few episodes have come out the back of that and we'll continue to do so, I think. So if you think you are uh, a budding, what would that be, a, a, a show producer? Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Producer. Just oh, that's too much power. Pay us. <laughs> pay us. Four. Four. <laughs> just four. And you'll be able to get in there and get in our ear. And influence the direction of this this program. You will indeed. But if you want to, if you want to take it up a level, the next one is fifteen pounds or Oof. fifteen, just fifteen, Oof. fifteen, <laughs> just fifteen, and you can get a digital record sent to you every month by an unsunger of your choice. Uh, and we've got quite the selection so far. A, a lot of really fucking great records. Mm-hmm. Can we make the point? I know a lot of people rely on streaming services for their music. There's something nice about owning these records, um, especially because a lot of these are bespoke sort of curated things. You probably aren't going to hear about them unless you get them sent to you by us because we have spent so long and combing through all these different albums and mini labels and stuff to find these. Mm -hmm. So there's the curation aspect. 
also there's the, the fact that the money that you're sending to us, a big chunk of that is going to these artists and going to these labels in a way that, frankly, the streaming services will never do. I mean, for us sending you, let's say, uh, your average digital album, one 10-track digital album, the, the artist will probably get, I don't, I don't think I'll be exaggerating by saying something like 5,000 times more money for that mm. than they would if you then went and listened to it in Spotify. Yeah. So if you're kind of weighing up, like, well, how does that work? I don't carry music around with you. You're like, yeah, okay, I get that. But it's a way to keep the music scene alive, and mm. especially at the lower level. So you're helping us fund the pod, and then we're passing, like, the, the majority of that money, we're then passing on to the, the small labels and the small groups. And as I say, it is just exponentially uh, more financially helpful than you maybe just going and listening to it on Spotify. Mm-hmm. And I use Spotify, it's great for that, but there is a time and a place to invest in these people, otherwise they can't keep doing what they're doing. And by doing the Digital Club, we have actually enabled, I think it's a repress, and also I think Gas Giant are in the process of putting together a collection of unreleased music that probably wouldn't have happened unless we'd been doing this. So please, that's the motivation, and we, we hope that breaks through your stony heart yeah all these things are on band are sent via Bandcamp as well so the Bandcamp app allows you to store them so you may have to get another app on your phone if you want to you know stay true you can use it alongside Spotify which, which I do so yeah it's, it's not too hard right it's no, not too hard no. but you know if you really want to roll with the big people mm-hmm. give us 40 <laughs> well, this varies. So it varies Give us a nondescript yeah. number because it's based on your location in the world because postage is factored in. But yeah, it's averaging out about 35, 40. Mm-hmm. Some of the more far flung people are paying 50. Yep. 50. 50. But we are sending things right the way across the planet. I mean, literally right the way across the planet. Via the mail. <laughs> yeah. And it, it's expensive to send sheep. Uh, it's expensive. Have you ever tried to send a sheep? Just to, just to, like some wool is expensive, right? A whole fucking sheep, man. You need to get a container ship. Well, it's just it's a nightmare. A fucking nightmare. Best idea is suck at the bones first. Because <laughs> you can't reassemble it back at the other side. Though. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, and with this particular option, we'll send you actual vinyl, which are different from the bands that we're sending digital ones to. So you actually get you two won't records. get the same thing twice. Yeah. Well, you get two records, which is great. And if you're if 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 you if you actually think you know what I like the idea. And I've got a bit of cash to spare Then you can just do an annual subscription And it'll actually be a discount over the course of 12 months You'll get 2 months off if you if you go annual as well So yeah, that's yeah. the hard sell really, If you're you know? an early onset dementia And easily influenced Then you can send us a year's worth of money And change your will <laughs> <laughs> um, So that's a lot of admin That's out the road There's something we need to discuss screamo. Before we wade into this episode <laughs> Okay, It's not quite as screamy. Paul McCartney Paul McCartney <laughs> Thoughts He's doing no bad for an eight year old Yeah so uh, On the In the sort of a uh, Unsung group chat. Oh, he wants you to do this. You want to do this. We, we, we had some. We had some pretty good conversations about. I'm this. too. I'm too ill for this man. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I am not a huge Beatles fan. Mark, you're a bit of a Beatles fan, aren't you? Yeah, I grew up with them, so yeah. you know. You, you seem younger, <laughs> but <laughs> you know, it's all them sheep's. Um, I am not a huge Beatles fan. Uh, there's there's some stuff I like, but I have to take my, my hat off. Paul McCartney 
at Glastonbury, an eighty-year-old man, an eighty-year-old mm-hmm. man doing a was a three-hour set, almost, yep. almost a three-hour set of music. And we were talking about this because I think it was earlier in the day or the day prior. Diana Ross had been doing a set, and Diana Ross is seventy-eight. And she's on tour just now as well. And she's on tour, mm-hmm. yeah. And technically, women live longer, so she's even younger on average. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, Diana Ross did a set, and Diana Ross is really struggling to sing now. Mm. She, she's I mean, she's 78. I'm not criticising her for not dancing on stage, (laughs) but what you're getting for your money going to a Diana Ross concert, I would say throws into the question whether or not it should be a thing that's happening. Mm -hmm. You know, we were debating the notion of ageism and being the edgelord that I am kind of came down on the side of the fact that I think ageism is entirely appropriate in certain things. It's appropriate in professional sports because there's a level of product that people are entitled to, to expect. And I think it's somewhat appropriate in music. Now, not as a flat rule, but because there are certain styles, you know, Tom Waits is probably still going to be fucking great right up until the day he pops his clogs. Bob Dylan right? as well. Bob Dylan, uh, jazz musicians. I mean, some of them are even better the older they get. But there are certain other styles of music, and especially where like a vocal range is concerned, and you can't deliver. Um, and not only can't you deliver, but you're kind of trying to deliver and and missing it and stuff. When I'm just hit with the the, the realization that this is this shouldn't be happening. I don't, I don't think this is good, and we'll not get right into the nitty gritty of that because I think it really speaks to a lot of things about the musical culture we're in. We, we were also talking about what is Glastonbury going to look like in thirty years because we don't really produce legacy acts now. I think we said Arctic Monkeys. I mean, Oasis are becoming a legacy act already. Um, there's not that many bands of this era that will be able to take the main stage in Glastonbury in 30, 40 years and actually cause a stir. It's not really a thing that's happening now. Acts are very short-lived. Hmm. Um, I felt there was a huge contrast as well between somebody like Paul McCartney, who could have played six hours and still had tunes in the bag, versus Billie Eilish, who I think I know one and a half songs by her. And I just think there's such a huge gulf between these things now that I wonder what these festivals are going to look like when that generation finally does start to die out and and the pack thins. Anyway, that all said, Paul McCartney, what a fucking effort, Maka. That was pretty amazing. Mm -hmm. And I noticed there were a few eye rolls about Dave Grohl. Um, I don't think there were as many eye rolls about Bruce Springsteen. Because he's the boss. Because he's the boss. But it worked, didn't it? Yeah, it totally did work. Um, it's it's kind of it's a that's a festival moment you come to expect, right? Yeah. Well, that, the thing like, is, they don't often deliver. It. I don't mm-hmm. think the Kanye one delivered at all. I thought that was a fucking embarrassing. Actually, mm. Kendrick Lamar was fantastic as well, and I'm not a huge fan of Kendrick Lamar. Um, but back to Paul McCartney, just back to your point about you know basically knowing when to give in. I think there are there are artists who are younger than Paul McCartney who who, who are in that category. John Bon Jovi being the the, the one that immediately springs to mind. If you oh, see the, oh. any of the videos online him recently, you just can't do it anymore. And that's probably because vocally it's just it's not possible. It's just it's, just, it's, it's, it's a not physical possible. degradation. Mm-hmm. I mean, your vocal cords are something that deteriorate. Yeah. You know, and if the style of singing is dependent on them mm-hmm. being pristine, I mean, it is different for Tom Waits because of the style of singing that he does. It's different for Nick Cave to some extent. Uh, you know, if you're Diana Ross, or especially John Bon Jovi, I'd imagine Tom York will probably have a tough time as he gets older. 
you know, these these people are going to struggle mm-hmm. with, with their voices. And Paul McCartney is, he's still got a cracking vocal range for his age. He does. There's a lot of people that are his age, Brian Wilson, that just can't do it, man. Yeah. You know, yeah. and that's another thing. I think there's a lot of people on Twitter saying that his voice was a shadow. Or he's thinking, I was like, well, still a fucking great shadow. Do you know what yeah. I mean? Like, you can't, it's like you said, you can't rock up and expect to hear him like he was in the 60s. It's just not going to happen. But I guess you always be clever in adapting your songs to make them fit. Yeah, I, th- I think you have good. to put it on like a kind of relative scale. And if you compare the quality of his performance or like the quality of a contemporary Bruce Springsteen performance, mm-hmm. which is not vintage, but it's still an amazing show. Mm-hmm. You compare that to the quality of thing you're getting from other artists who are really struggling. John Bon Jovi being a, a really good example. And it's a shame for him. It is a shame for him. But he's he's just, you are not getting a good product when you go and see that now. Mm-hmm. I just don't know that there should be a sort of indefinite run to your career in certain ways. I mean, I think it's, if you're a footballer and you can't sprint, then mm-hmm. are you really a footballer? You know? Yeah. And I, I, I don't know about that. Um, you can change, you can, you can change the direction of your career as you go older. Cause like, I just, I find it really difficult for, for someone like John Bon Jovi to, to, to keep thinking that he can do that album after album, knowing the fact that his voice is getting is, is what getting worse? He would change a songwriting style, like Paul McCartney did, has done yeah. throughout his career. Elton John's another good example as well. Aye, aye. Um, I was going to say, like, try to think of some other examples of people who've certainly lowered their range, mm-hmm. and in some cases, like, darkened the style of singing that they do, become bluesier or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Steven Seagal. Steven Seagal. <laughs> oh, what, what a man! <laughs> uh, and some would say his later stuff's his best stuff. <laughs> so I, I was going to say Kim Jong Un. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Putin, please. <laughs> I, uh, I was going to say, as part of the conversation that we had, and it's worth bringing in now, is that I'm going to see Guns N' Roses um, very, soon, very, very soon. Exhibit A, my lad. Um, and I only bought a ticket because it's Slash and Duff, and I'm never seeing him live ever again. And, and I've never seen him live before because obviously way before my time. Axel Rose's Guns N' Roses have been touring basically forever. Like they haven't never stopped really, right? Um, so as a band, they're always going to be good. Right, his voice is never always going to be good because it's it was hard to keep up back in the early nineties when they were doing Usual Illusion tour. Mm-hmm. His voice was starting to lose some of his shine back then. Mm-hmm. He's since had surgeries and stuff, and you know what, he can still hit those notes and stuff, but it doesn't sound like the same singer. Um, but that's not where you go. You go for the whole band and the whole show, right? And mm-hmm. he's obviously a big feature. I think I was pretty burned by going to see Flock of Seagulls. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what I basically saw was the singer who now looks like the third Mitchell brother <laughs> kind of grunting his way through this 80s pop with a bunch of like really young hired guns. Mm-hmm. And I, I will say, they, was that song uh, Ran? I Ran? Yeah, I Ran. Um, they did do that justice. I mm-hmm. don't know if they'd maybe taken it down a couple of notes, um, but the, the rest of it was pretty brutal. Mm-hmm. And I think I was just like, oh my God, what the fuck am I doing? This is so silly. I was trying to will myself to enjoy it, but see, once I got sucked out of that that that, that mental space, and I was like, "No, be objective. This is fucking shit." <laughs> if I had, if this, you know, it's maybe not a fair metric, but when I watch a band, it doesn't matter how famous they are. I do also, in the back of my mind, think, "Imagine this was the first time you'd seen this band. Imagine this is a new band. How are they doing?" Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of famous bands fail to make that that measure because we're we invest. You know, if we like a band, we make the band good in our heads, even if the band was very, very average. Mm-hmm. And that's why so many people obviously leave shows with different per- perceptions of the shows, how much they're invested in it. Mm-hmm. But when I got sucked out of that moment before Flock of Seagulls, I was like, this is fucking embarrassing. Mm-hmm. You would see this in a pub. Mm-hmm. Um, so, well, yeah. With another thing we mentioned in this chat is that nostalgia is a, is a huge factor. It kind of hints at what you're kind of ties into what you were saying there. So Paul McCartney... Mm-hmm. 
talking about famous institutions. Uh-huh. The United Nations. The United Another Nations. Another famous institution. Yeah. <laughs> Which uh, also, you know, uh, the first album did have the Abbey Road cover with the Beatles on fire. Oh, that's right. Uh, <laughs> so, there's, a, there's a nexus. Yeah. So, Mark has chosen uh, United Nations. Um, Mark, do you want to tell us a wee bit about this? So United Nations by United Nations mm-hmm. is the first album by the band United Nations. Yes, it, is. <laughs> it was released in 2008 and it's basically a hardcore supergroup. I thought I always thought they were a grindcore band, but I've since listened to a lot of grindcore doing this podcast and they're actually way more a scream, yeah. screamo band than a grindcore band. I think that band. was missoul to me a wee mm-hmm. bit as well because I was like, this is a bit more screamo. Yeah. Um, Mark, I'm Power not bands. sure this this is actually a band I can't find them on Facebook Why is, it, is, is something going on? Something has been on, yeah Will we get to that? Let's get to that Yeah, so uh, Formed in 2005 Over to Jeff Rickley from Thursday Had a chat with his good pal Daryl Palumbo Who may or may not be in the band <laughs> <laughs> uh, About like basically their love for like Really chaotic screamo Like Nation Ulysses, Orchid, that kind of thing Yeah And they never really did anything about it Until Jeff was kind of a wee bit bored with Thursday's band Thursday and thought, you know what, I'm going to make this happen because I think it'll be a lot of fun. You know, that's something um, we have in common because I'm kind of bored with his band as well. <laughs> with Thursday or this one? Yeah, Thursday. I'm not a huge Thursday fan personally, so um, I feel as though to me they're a band we should probably we probably should do on this podcast because they're a huge band for that scene of music. Surprisingly big, yeah. yeah. But they never grabbed me. Never really, apart from the odd song, I, can, I tried so hard to get them. I know, I've got loads of friends that love them, and I never thought Jeff Rickley's screaming voice was that great either on Thursday. But when I heard this, it was right up my fucking street, man. Mm-hmm. You know. I had a few different members of the band. Uh, I have written them down if we want to talk about who who they may or may not be. Yeah, yeah, there's some there's there's some disagreement because this band their publicity shots are like wearing Reagan masks, mm-hmm. right? For the first album, it was yeah. Aye, and the, so it's pretty vague, and they, they like to throw out a lot of red herrings. Mm-hmm. You know, it's kind of edgy. It's kind of fun. Uh, so. There are theories on who's in it. I think we've probably got a different list of people. I was looking through message boards and stuff. Um, where did you get yours? Uh, I just cobbled them together from various different places online. Right, so okay. Before we do that, let's start off by saying Jeff Rickley is the only official member of the band because when the band formed, he was the only member that wasn't under contract with another record label. Yeah. Since then, it's come to be known that there are two people in the band who were... Who Pro, I don't know if they played in the first album, but cer- second, certainly played in the next four years. The second album is uh, Jonah Bear, the journalist, and Luke Previn, who who actually played guitar for Thursday from 2011 onwards. So I think it must have been pals via the scene with Jeff. So technically, the band has three members that are recognised as being members, but loads of people have played with them. Mm-hmm. Some people have even played shows when Jeff hasn't even been there and just done vocals for them. You know what I mean? So, mm-hmm. but a whole bunch of people just played with them, which I think that actually is pretty cool, right? You, this whole Revolving door thing. It's our music. None of the music's copyrighted. You it's know, we're like MF Doom. Yeah, pretty much. Send somebody yeah. else it. <laughs> totally. Yeah, the, the copyrighting thing really intrigues me. Let's let's talk about that in a minute. But mm. um, give me some names. Uh, so Daryl Palumbo from Glassjaw. Uh, 
um, supposed to have started the band with Jeff Rickley. It hasn't been confirmed, but they released a song in 2017 called Stairway to Mar-a-Lago, and I am about 90% sure he's the vocalist on that song. Um, It sounds like him. So I I realise that Glassjaw was a huge deal for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. I think, in fact, arguably one of the most influential breakout acts in uh, an entire era of that plaintive, yelpy, heartfelt, angsty, screamo stuff. But to me, Daryl Palumbo's voice was like dragging a fork across a metal surface. Yeah, I mean, it's similar to Jeff Rickley's. I think, you know, it's take or leave it, you know. It's pretty OTT. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's, there's moments in Glassjaw that do undeniably click for me. But ultimately, I think easily the best thing he did was beating Heart Baby with Head Automatica, yeah. where he really found a niche mm-hmm. where that OTT sort of sexy boy fucking uh, mm-hmm. thing really kind of it, it sat nicely. You gotta get away from me. Um, so it, it, he's not a selling point on this project. Well, later Glassjaw stuff is a lot more. Um, it moves really far away from that kind of yelpiness. It's a lot more, a bit psychedelic in places, but also heavy. It's actually really cool for me. That the selling point was that he was prote- potentially involved back in that time, back in the time when the record came out, and I was a I was a big Glassjaw fan back in the day. Um, the first album is problematic as fuck now, and maybe we'll talk about that at a later date. Is it? But, That's interesting. I don't yeah, know because the whole album is basically about like he. The story goes right that he was straight edge up until the second Glassjaw album, until Head Automatica. Basically, he was completely straight edge. And that also involved the no sex, no like uh, fucking around thing basically. So he was like seeing this one, he was like devoted to this one woman or this one girl, I guess, because they would have been teenagers. The first album, Everything You Ever Wanted to Know About Silence, is basically him ripping her to shreds and calling her a whore basically because she cheated on him. There are songs on it which really go to town on that metaphor, you know. Uh, but quite difficult to sell if it was to come out these days, that's for sure. Mm, There's some, some really. If not borderline misogynistic, definitely misogynistic language on it, I would say. A lot of people that I know like still like Glassjaw, not ready to confront that reality, but it, it hasn't aged well. Deal with it. Deal with it, yeah. Um, so, yeah, he was one of them. Ben Collar's the other one. Ben Collar, Converge, Et top five <laughs> of all time for me, so... De- yes. He's definitely on this record, mm-hmm. right? The first one. And most projects he's involved in are really worthwhile. Mm-hmm. I, I, it sounds like him on the first record. There's, like, there's no doubt about it, man. Um, like I said, Jonah Bear, um, journalist Lucas Previn. Ryan Bland, um, he did some live vocals for them. That's a good name, eh? Yeah, he's uh, apparently he's a, a New York hardcore scene legend. Uh, he's in a band called Ake, but I don't really know much about him, but apparently he's well known in this in that, that scene. Um, R. Bland. R. Bland, yeah. <laughs> Maybe that's not his real name. I've, I've been surprised it wasn't his real name to be I honest. had a guy, uh, Eric Cooper, uh, the bassist that made out, made of, out babies. of babies. Made yeah, uh-huh, okay. Cool band, that's a band that Steve uh, mentioned. Yeah, he did, that's right. I wonder, I wonder if I knew the name, yeah. Uh-huh. we got Chris Conger from the number 12, Looks Like You. Yes, never heard them. Um, they are very much of this kind of band, like mm-hmm. the Screamo. How yeah. would the number 12 look like someone? I don't know. Side on? 
Maybe. Hang on, I'm looking at it right now. <laughs> uh, if you were kneeling down and your bum was in the air and you had a beak. You had a beak. <laughs> Number 12 looks like a bird. <laughs> Jim Carroll from... Not not that, Jim Carroll. <laughs> not from Jim Carroll band. Um, Jim Carroll from The Hope Conspiracy and he was also in a band called Pure Love with Frank Carter, which is the first thing he did after Gallows, which oh, is right, like okay. power pop, basically. Really interesting turn for Frank Carter, actually. I'm so sick of singing about hate It's never gonna make a change It breaks me He played guitar on the first record as well, um, and then more recently, Zach Su- Zach Sewell and David Hulk from Piano Pianos become the teeth. Zach Sewell, the drummer, and Dave Hulk, the bass player of that band, mm. good band. Uh, very much in co- very much like have a lot sonically in common. They're more of that kind of Tushy Amore melodic hardcore style, but vocally and melodically, you can hear their influence definitely in the second record. Anyway, so see that an- anonymity. There is an element of that which I, I get. It was I guess it was necessitated by the label stuff, but also it was a sense that we want to see how good this project is on its own merits. Mm-hmm. So it's it's quite enigmatic. There's a selling point there, but it is also. Because you're not 100% sure who it is And to be perfectly honest Some of those names as well Are not exactly like box office mm-hmm. So it's really like How good is this? If you think about it At the time it came out right Thursday hadn't broken up yet But they were still writing pretty high Attaching Jeff Rickley's name to the project And being like the pair I mean he clearly did come up with it It would have been the biggest draw Apart from Daryl Palumbo And he was doing I think he was probably doing Head Automatic at the time mm-hmm. So yeah it makes sense Isn't it true that he So after they'd done The major label debut War all the time mm-hmm. He was quoted as saying I wanted to write the first UN record As the next Thursday record I had all this super grindy blasty stuff And I was just like Let's completely disconnect from Melody And try and get off a major label Yeah That's the hardcore And the hardcore guy coming out right They had a really They, they were on the major label I think only for two albums anyway um, That makes sense And I think From the same article you're talking about Thursday They were like absolutely not We're not fucking doing that <laughs> It was like some seriously Um no, we can't do that. Which is fair. Um, he also said in that interview that um, he he can still he still like the idea of being able to go out and play house shows and yeah. sleep on floors and all that and yeah and and take risks with the music. And I suppose when you get to a major label, you start to think less about taking risks. And War of the Time is probably one of the most, if not the most, accessible Thursday albums. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, they had festivals to play. You know, the band were like, "Come on, Jeff, we've just got here. Yeah. Can we not fuck it up straight away?" Mm-hmm. Although there is something about that sentiment that I really like I find that quite relatable but I am also compelled to question Jeff Rickley's judgement why? because Jeff Rickley <laughs> went and became the singer of a band called No Devotion um, yeah which is Lost Profits minus the Kitty Fiddler mm-hmm. I am just perplexed by that right and, and, and hey the other people in Lost Profits might be perfectly nice guys they might have genuinely known nothing about Ian Watkins' problematic behaviour, mm-hmm. as hard as that is to believe. Mm-hmm. It may well be the case that they never saw anything that was problematic, and that could be very, very true. But Lost Profits were fucking shite. Right, so, I mean, I know they were successful, but they were fucking shite successful. 
are you not tempted to question the judgment of a guy who listens to lost prophets and thinks, ah, the, the, the only real issue with this is that, is that the singer is a kiddie mm-hmm. fiddler and this this other four, is it four group of, a group of four musicians? Five, yeah. Five. This is something the world still really needs. I mean, well, they are they are quite different. <laughs> no, no, no devotion are a really a completely different band, like sonically from from um, Lost Prophets. They're like a post-punk band. What, was, what was he hearing that tipped him off to that, though? Well, this is going back in my knowledge. This is going like way back in the depth of my mind here, man. But I, I seem to remember back then, I was quite perplexed when I heard about it happening as well, because I was like, what the fuck, man? That's mental. And I seem to remember Jeff Rickley saying in an interview that he actually, like, he felt really bad that they, had, they were now being robbed of, of a chance to make a living. Yeah, they've been punished for something they didn't do. Um, I get that. And they were like, well, he's like, well, I think these guys are great musicians. We tour, we lost profits. And... I th- they still wanted to make music and they asked me if I wanted to sing with them and I said yes so. but as I say they've been punished for something they didn't do mm-hmm. they should be punished for something they did do which was the Lost Prophets music <laughs> and there's nothing about that band that makes you think this needs to continue I mean have have you heard Weapons their last album from 2012 I had at the time I've not heard it since then <laughs> it fucking sucks man I never liked them I always I mean, thought they were a shit band generic anyway. smarmy mm-hmm. swaggering glossy emo metal Pish. I, I, I'm just immediately suspicious of any project fronted by a guy who who listens to a song like uh, We Bring an Arsenal from that album and thinks, despite the fact that this brand is already associated with the molestation of literal infants, this is some magical musical collective that needs to be kept alive in some form. That is a decision I cannot get with. I just, I just can't fucking figure it out. I mean, the brand is poisoned. Mm. Even if No Devotion were a fucking right-on excellent band, which there is no reason to think they would be, but even if they were it's so fucking poisoned like those guys need to split up, even if they're great pals something exceptionally bad happened that you need to split up and go and do something else, because nobody's going to be like, if a great band comes out and they're like, that's the basis from Lost Profits nobody's going to shoot that band right the fuck down, mm-hmm. but if you're like, that's four of the five or five of the six members of Lost Profits Yes, you're going to get shot down. Well, you know, I think they were still obviously writing music and it was nothing like Lost Profits, so it was never going to sound like that band anyway, which is probably what they wanted to do. But I also think the brand brand was poisoned because time has proven that people didn't give a fuck about it. Do you know what I mean? Like, it didn't go anywhere. I think they tried to do it. I think they've been writing a second album for about fucking 10 years or something, or like eight years or something like that. Or maybe they have and it's coming out soon, I don't know, but... they just vanished they because they could have been spending that time in new projects mm-hmm. you know I mean one or two of them go somewhere one goes another just like the world's a big fucking place I'm sure you've got lots of contacts in the industry I don't you know, unless you've been like uh, quarantined mm-hmm. together <laughs> because of what happened like, I just I just don't get it it doesn't make any sense to me yeah Lost Prophets drummer that I think it was I don't know if it was a second or third one the one who was in the band when they fucking it died broke. anyway it broke yeah. uh, Ellen Rubin he played for Danish Nails for a long time and he's a fantastic drummer there you go that's yeah. a that's a perfectly acceptable way to progression yeah career. totally um, and he, he was really young as well I think <laughs> weird now you think about it <laughs> not um, young enough for Ian I think like he was a t- I think he was in his late teens like 18, 19 when the rest of the band were in their probably 30s mm-hmm. when he joined the band which is now super creepy when you think about it <laughs> um, but this was, this was before No Devotion and it's, it's funny because the second album has come after No Devotion um, which is weird but 
I like the idea of this record. I like the idea of this band, not just because I think they're cool and, and they sound good. I just like the idea of like Jeff Eckley saying, "Now, what? Keep taking chances with the music." I like this idea of I still need this outlet for this this stuff, mm-hmm. and the major label's not going to get me there anymore. So I, I'm a mm-hmm. little bit intrigued about the motivation and the themes, and I guess to some extent the ambitions for the project. I I, I like your point, and I agree with your point about. Thursday attained a level of success that took Jeff Rickley away from this quite enjoyable, nostalgic experience of playing small club shows and if not DIY touring, but, you know, one just one step up from that. And I get the appeal of that, I totally do. But I think in terms of from the band's name, for example, mm-hmm. and the general approach, it initially seemed quite acerbic and quite overtly political. But to be honest, the more I've read into it, uh, the lyrics and the titles of the tracks and I'm not so sure is it that it can be characterised as overtly political. I don't think it really is. To it's be a bit more nihilistic. It's, mm. it's quite cynical. Um, as we mentioned, they do a lot of disinformation stuff. The publicity in the press releases seem to be focused on kind of messing with people, mm-hmm. um, making fun of how gullible the rock press are, throwing, as I said, red herrings out to their fans like, oh, we'll do this, we'll do this. Here's a concept album we're going to record that they never intended to yep. record. Um, <laughs> And I, like, I, put, I pulled out some lyrics that I thought were, were, were interesting. Pity Animal from uh, Nevermind... Nevermind the bomb is usual six figures. Six figures. Uh, run, sleep in the streets, run in the gutters, head in your hands, blood in your country's teeth, run away. It's it's sort of like vaguely political. You can tell there's like an aggression and a sort of ambiguous political tone to it mm-hmm. of protest, but it never really hones in. You know, and that, that to me kind of epitomised that. Uh, the spinning heart of the yo-yo lobby from United Nations, the album we are talking about. We've got a lot, but we want more. Exploit the wage on the stage of the third world. Entertainment, exclamation mark, for fun and profit, for parents and screaming children. And again, and I'm not trying to shit in it, but that is like a little bit like a kind of teenage punk rock yeah. thing. Quite vague. And so this idea that this is like a kind of proactive political band was starting to maybe dissipate a bit for me. I was like, this is sort of um sort of alluding to, to, to disenfranchisement or politics or corruption, but it never specifies anything. Well I guess it's interesting because when they released um the next four years, which is a, a cool box set, which we'll talk about in mm-hmm. a second, Jeff Frickley said in an interview, which I think there was the one you were talking about that you won't quote earlier on, is like it's, it was mostly about critiquing creedism and punk rock music. In that specific parts of that culture, um, he talks about like all different layers of hypocrisy that exist in it. For example, a minor threat T-shirt being twenty eight dollars at Urban Outfitters, or to that being a thing where somebody would set up a whole set of ideals to combat the fact that it's twenty eight dollars for a minor threat T-shirt. The fact that minor threat accidentally started straight edge, and there's so many layers that are wrong with it. It's just anti, anti, anti everything. It became yeah perpetual adversarialism. Yeah, and I know. think that's. Robberous. Yeah, because it, it also, if if you think about the, the the music, well, like lyrics, maybe maybe even the music, I guess, as through that lens, it makes sense as to why you'd fuck with people for this information by saying, oh yeah, we got a fucking Kirsten Shaw to write lyrics for us, or we worked with the guys for Homestar Runner, which is like Michael Show, what David Showalter and McLean Black and stuff like that, which clearly didn't happen, mm-hmm. you know. Um, I think I generally. I became aware of an overarching political disaffection. There were some decent turns of phrase dotted about, but as I say, the songs never committed to any specific subject. There was no actual insight or focus point that I could discern, mm-hmm. just a sort of freewheeling misanthropy and post-Generation X cynicism. There were lyrics about the left and the right being exactly the same, 
talk about false flags, talk about capitalism, talk about babies and the feds and loads of buzzwords. And I, th- I think those sort of slogans make for it nice sound bites and sing-alongs. They certainly make for good sing-alongs at mm-hmm. a punk show. But I didn't find the albums presented any real vision or agenda. Felt, as I say, a bit like the work of a teenager. Not awful by any means, but glib. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Very easy, very cheap kind of sloganeering. Superficially satisfying, certainly. But sloganeering. Well, his his contention vapid. his contention is all the songs are set up as jokes and the punchlines are all incredibly sad. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's the way that I look at it. Because the shape of punk that never came is one of the names. Of this. He actually directly quotes the, like a refusal to in it, saying it's fucking shit. This didn't happen, right? <laughs> right, but you know it's interesting that you mention them though because that is they're like, refused are a band that work best at a certain age, mm-hmm. right? And then you get to a point where you're like, oh, wait a minute. Because I think they were prone to a kind of generic posturing as well, which hasn't aged all all that nicely. Mm-hmm. Um, I think this project and its demeanour reminds me a bit of Dead Kennedys. Um, and, and I wouldn't be surprised if it grew from some discussions of that as well, mm-hmm. you know, uh, backstage conversations at a festival and stuff between guitarists yeah. and singers and stuff. But the lyrics aren't as clever or as focused as the Dead Kennedys. They don't hone in on things the way Jello Biafra did. Mm-hmm. You know, they they never risk being uh, specific. Yeah. I don't know. Is 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 it is is the record trying to be sincere and hard hitting? I don't know. I wouldn't um, say so. I mean he started he said that the whole thing was was just started just for fun. That's it. It almost, it almost feels though that being sincere would be too much like trying mm-hmm. and trying risks failing. It almost you know, it's easier to set up a kind of sort of sneering, sarcastic joke than it is to try and make a serious point. You know, what Jello Biafra did in the Dead Kennedys is more risky because there's more people wanting to shoot you down and there's more there's more ways that you could get it wrong than if you can just pass everything off as a joke. It's it's a bit of a get out, do you know what I mean? But you gotta think as well, like he's coming from Thursday who are a super sincere, like really serious band, take themselves very seriously. You know, so that is the complete antithesis of that, mm-hmm. and musically, and I guess in terms of, I guess I was just expecting something really different here, because I mean, I, I know we spoke in advance about how it was quite grindcorey, and it, in the end, it didn't really come across as that. And then I, I think also I just left, whether intentional or not, I'd left our conversations with the impression it was quite a political band. I think the name suggests that, mm-hmm. and it isn't really. It's it's a disaffected kind of teenage project. Uh, to some, even though he's in his thirties, it's it. it it doesn't have either of those things. So I was really, as we were listening to it this week, kind of coming to terms with this is not what I expected. I thought I was getting an extremely overtly political grindcore album. And it's not, yeah. It's not that. Yeah. It's, well, it's, I, I thought, I, I would have called it grindcore in my youth, but it's having, like I said, having done proper grindcore on this podcast and then listened to it for this show, I was like, well, it's actually a lot more power violence or screamo. I never felt, personally never felt it was very political I'm, I'm sorry if I gave you that impression Like I never thought like the name's political I, I don't know, I maybe just arrived at that You know, and um, the snippets that I looked at And the titles and stuff yeah. like that I, I think speaking personally, being honest I would have probably preferred an all out Kind of earnest political confrontation Especially given that As you said, they've got these other Projects, all of them That give them an outlet for their more Kind of prosaic leanings mm-hmm. I don't know That that would probably have tickled me a bit more. I'm not sure the world needs more <laughs> sort of cynical slash nihilistic, you know, sneering, ironic rock. But that is not to say it's not really good. I, I will come to that. But um, I mean, I do, I, I will say on this record, uh, the first the original cover 
was banned. Mm-hmm. Um, but I love it. I love. I think I should probably have taken from that that there was a bit of political nihilism about it because the cover has that beautiful throwaway, snidey kind of air about it. You know, it's just like take Abbey Road, put the Beatles on fire. I really like that sense of mm-hmm. humour. I think that's an it's a, it's a really nice, irreverent thing. It's done by James Cotty from, from KLF. KLF, mm-hmm. yeah. I think that's a great cover. I, I, I really enjoyed that about it. Mm. Um, and I think maybe if I'd paid more attention to that, I'd be like, oh, there's a lot of sarcasm at, at play here, more than I'm maybe expecting. Um, apparently, <laughs> Jim Cotty said that you can use the artwork, but you need to say you stole it from me, not that you got it from me. <laughs> oh my God, the KLF are something else, man. And he basically said after that, the problems that happened after this are your fault now, and they're not mine, <laughs> which, which totally makes sense. Um but yeah, I think they, they played Barack Obama's inauguration and stuff like that. They have done some political shows, and the proceeds from the latest single, Stay to Mar a Lago, they went to any profit they made went to the ACLU. So there's obviously political intent somewhere in, in the mix. Mm-hmm. I guess I just never really paid attention if it, to it much or thought it was that overt when it was there. I just liked that it was nihilism, you know? I just like that. <laughs> Isn't it a bit of a shame that there's nobody picking up the baton from Dead Kennedys now? Um. I, I'm so disengaged with political punk music because it feels a bit passe to me now that I couldn't see if there was or wasn't. I'm, I'm pretty sure there are. Well, there's no conspicuous leading lights, yeah. you know, right above the parapet the way they were. If I thought about it, I, I'm sure there's going to be people who come and, come and correct me right after this goes out. Uh, I read so, some some of the reception online. Um, there's a blog called Sophie's Floorboard. I had quite a nice write-up on them. United Nations are a rare breed, to say the least. It's very rare for a band to come along with an overt sociopolitical agenda for radical change and challenge within Western social structure and ideology. The thing is, I just am not seeing that, Mm -hmm. as I say. And it's interesting that another reviewer has interpreted their music in this way when I'm getting exactly the opposite impression the more, the more familiarised I get with it. Um, I mean, Rickley started a reply in a Pitchfork interview with the, the quote, as much as the band is a joke. <laughs> so, I mean, fuck, it's a joke band. Yeah. It's a joke. That, I, I, I just feel like nobody can really decide what the fuck this actually is. That's kind of beautiful though, right? It's very Gen X, isn't it? <laughs> um Tell me about the the copyright stuff. I'm, I'm fascinated by that because they refused to copyright the band name, obviously, which cost them potential earnings, but helped protect them when the actual United Nations... Sent them a cease and desist letter. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Came calling, sent them a cease and desist letter. Uh, it led to the MySpace and Facebook pages being deleted. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so basically, they, because of the members had to be anonymous as well, they, they didn't copyright any of the songs, which is, which is actually pretty cool. So how does that work? Um, that means that you can use them however you see fit, I guess. So you just, it's like, it's royalty free music I mean that's what I would assume that, I guess that also means maybe they don't get royalties from streaming and stuff PRS like that. and MCPS but well, I guess it would make sense if like the proceeds from the last single went to the ACLU and any money they make is just given away because they, I don't know but yeah it's caught, like, apparently it's copyright free because they couldn't I don't know about the second album but the first one definitely so they can they can press it and release it and, and sell it presumably so could we mm-hmm. yeah 
<laughs> the record label, even the record label that released Christmas the first idea, press and release. <laughs> well, they re-released it. Well, maybe that's different now because they re-released it in 2015 because it was it went out of print really quickly because of the album cover. Although I do actually have a CD copy and it's just black, completely black. Yeah. For some reason, it's got a paper. It's got like a you know like a hole punch like through the barcode in the back. Maybe I got it as a promo or something. All I right, know. Okay. I don't know. You know, you know um, that uh, Hot Topic destroyed seven thousand copies <laughs> yeah. of the CD um, yep. because there was a no return policy, which is genius. So they bought the CDs and then there was a no return policy in the CDs so they couldn't return them once the protest started about the cover, mm-hmm. which is a ridiculous protest anyway. Yeah. Uh, and reportedly the staff sent the band photos of them destroying the CDs as they were doing it. Mm-hmm. And like Jeff Eckley, I think he also says that we end up getting paid, we get paid for it but we're like, this is kind of absurd. <laughs> we get paid for this and now you destroy them. This is completely That's bizarre. genius. Yeah. If you can sell tens of thousands of, of CDs to different outlets who then just have to cope them. Yeah. Fantastic. He talks about the United Nations stuff in, in, uh, in, in, a, in a noisy interview from 2010, I think. So the United Nations were trying to convince them that they were being harassed by the band, the United Nations. <laughs> uh, they actually went to the, the record label because they couldn't find out who was in the band because it was because it was just Jeff Rickley, everybody else was anonymous, and they were like, is this you? And they were like, no. And then they asked the publicist, is it you? <laughs> no, it's not us. Uh, so their publicist basically got in touch with them and quit immediately. And he was like, I can't represent you guys. And he was like, Jeff, Jeff said, but why? You're not going to get in trouble for it. You're just re- representing a band that's done something wrong. And he's like, I don't know, man. I smoke a lot of pot and they're going to come to my house and destroy my life. <laughs> Fuck me. Um, and then the retailer stopped carrying the records. And so that was the whole point of it. It's like none of the songs were copyrighted, so nothing was legally tied back to the people that were in the band. It was our label that decided to not copyright it. So when they did cease and desist, they'd already made all those copies. <laughs> and then Eyeball just kept making them until they shut down the record label. <laughs> See, I, I find the story as compelling as the album itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think it's interesting, especially that it was uncopyrighted and the anonymity around it and stuff. It, it, it's something that I think probably, given that it's a pretty solid album, yeah, you would think more people would know about it as a talking point. Mm-hmm. So that was the first album, and then we can run through the second album, Dead Quickly, because it's a short record, but the, but, sto- the story, the legend around that is also pretty cool. There's also uh, an EP in between, Never Mind the Bombing, Here's Your Six Figures. Yeah, so the story behind that is that Death Wish were like, fuck it, we're just going to release it. Because obviously the name the United Nations was a wee bit like, fuck, can we really do it? And they were like, fuck it, we'll just do it if it happens as it happens. And Ben Frost, the Australian artist, was the one that did the cover, record yeah. cover for that. That's right. Um, and, you know, um, that's actually really good. I quite like Pity Animal. It's really tight and really focused. I like the guitars on Risen Angels. Never mind the bomb. Uh, Risen Animal. Uh, oh, you Brighton Risen Angels. Yeah, uh huh. Is that? Yeah. Yeah. It's rampaging. I like that about mm. it, but I'm, I'm not so convinced about the song passages and, it, and it's a little bit formulaic. I don't know. I quite like Nevermind the Bombing, the actual song. Um, it sounds like Thursday, but a screamo version of them. And I don't like Thursday that much, but the things that I like about Thursday are the heavier songs. Mm. Um, and it really works for me. And I think this is, this is completely conjecture on my part, right? I might be wrong, but this is like straight out of my head here. So there's another vocal on that song right and I'm about 90% sure it's Jeff Hirsch for the band Blacklisted it sounds exactly like him 
I've not seen anything about that online, but I'm fucking. I, I would bet my house on the fact that that's Jeff Hirsch being blacklisted. This, this doing that vocal. Him? Yeah, you'll have to refute it. We'll tag him and everything. <laughs> or somebody that sounds a hell of a lot like him from another one of those bands because he played with Blacklisted, um, like Thursday and like they're off part of that same scene, you know. Um, so I'm pretty sure that's him. Just a wee bit of trivia there, straight from my brain. Slithing. <laughs> yeah. So the next four years. Yeah, so this is a, a fictional discography of the band. It, it's a fictional discography of a band, the band, uh-huh. going from like their earliest starting point through their kind of more commercial phase and then their proggy phase. Yeah. yeah. So it, it came as a box set originally. It said it's kind of weird actually because they had to release it on CD and streaming and actually fucked with a couple of the ideas they had for the record. Um, so... It comes with a cassette, which is uh, the songs as it Fuck the Future and Stole the Past and um, United Nations versus United Nations are three songs in that cassette and that's supposed to be their demo. So it's pretty cool. Yeah. And it's got two seven inches, which is like when they were commercial. Mm-hmm. And then the ten inch at the end, which has got uh, F hash, A hash. It's F sharp, A F-sharp, sharp, yeah. dollar, dollar, which is sorry, a, a yeah. best take of F sharp, A sharp, infinity by Godspeed. Yeah, and that's them basically saying this is our attempt to at being Godspeed and being prog and stuff. It sounds nothing like Godspeed, <laughs> absolutely it's fucking so nothing like it. Um, but it's it's quite funny and, it's, and fun as well. And it's got Jeff singing on it, which you don't hear very much in this band. Um, but it feels closer to Death Heaven, that song, to me, than anything else. It's it's one of the most interesting. Um, largely, due, there's a drum beat in it with an excellent hi hat stab that offsets the snare, um, and the mix has kind of really been set up to showcase that that beat. Um, unlike anything else on here, the, the way it transitions to that meaty fuzz bass and the, the clean guitar reminds me a bit of Botch. Mm-hmm. Um, that you know the approach that Botch took at the end of We Are the Romans. Yeah. Um, although I'd say it's a wee bit less well considered mm. and musically accomplished than Botch, but at the end you can see the the big final resurgence of the song mm-hmm. coming a mile away. But it's it's kind of rewarding. It's I mean it's a satisfying record that's well executed. Um, I'm not convinced it's world beaten in any sense, but it's visceral. It's gripping at times. Um, I think Serious Business is a fucking cracking power violence song. Really, really good. I think. Yeah, I'd seen power violence used in a, in a few references to this record. Um, and I think the way it kicks off and the production, they're all about impact, you mm-hmm. know, like maximum info- impact. Vocals are really harsh and raspy instead of barking. The guitars in that one are big and washy. And they've got more than a hint of Sunbather to them as well, that black gaze thing. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And I think Sunbather had been released a year prior to that. Uh, it's also, did you notice that if at the end it's a bit like Phantom of the Opera? Is it? That's probably deliberate. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
it does work. Um, see the song Revolutions at Varying Speeds? Yeah, the, the mix is quite different in that one. Do you know why? No. Because they recorded the song at 35 RPM and at 45 RPM for the vinyl version. And then they put it on the record so you didn't know which one you were going to get. So there were different versions and different records, basically. Oh, right, okay. Um, so the way it turned out is they ended up having to record like a super long version of the song to make it, to make it work. Let me get the quote, because it's fucking really fascinating, man. This is a direct quote. I'm just going to say it. We should probably reiterate, the title is Revolutions at, at Varying, varying Speeds. Speeds yeah. So the theme makes sense now. So that the whole idea is a fake, like you said, a fake, a fake progression from basement punk band to pretentious eight-minute-long experimental, we're too cool for the shit we used to do style band. Um, Revolutions at Varying Speeds is meant to be played at 33 RPM and 45 RPM because it was recorded at two different speeds. So at one speed it sounds like a Doom song and then he put it at 45 and it sounds like Orchid. And then they remixed the digital version because they wouldn't be able to have the both speeds on the digital version. So basically they did a 25 minute, 800 times slowed down version and called it Revolutions in Real Time. And it sounds like Sun or something. There's a song, a different song on the record, it doesn't specify which, but it's got two endings. Um, so the thing about vinyl, he says, is it's like a road, and the road splits, and you can go either way, and that's just how the album ends on the vinyl version, which mm. is fucking really cool. It's pretty interesting, yeah. I think uh, Between Two Mirrors and that stuck out as well, because of the, the blast beat in it, and the interesting slowdown. Yeah, the main riff sounds like the Bronx to me, it's more kind of rock and roll Yeah, And the main riff when it repeats is, is fucking really good, man. And yeah, towards the end, when it goes like really full bore, like full throat blast is, is brilliant. I like Fuck the Future, Stole the Past and United Nations vs United Nations are both three really short songs and they're supposed to be their demo and they sound pure scrappy and raggedy as fuck and it really works for me. Um, the first one, Fuck the Future, is, is probably the best of the three. It's really succinct and direct. I think it's really cool to capture that energy, even though you guys have been in bands and are professionals, quote unquote professionals, and have been, but still really capture this energy of like, ah, just fucking no. How do, do you it, think you man. do that? Do you think you go in to record the demo without having practiced a lot? Do you think you all you say right, we're only doing one take, something like that? It needs to not be perfect. Yeah, so, yeah. I would. I'd be a one take guy, right? Like, whatever happens, happens. I would man. go in to do the recording, but deliberately not let anyone rehearse for a month. <laughs> just see what happens. Which yeah. clearly is something I'd have to insist <laughs> on in my current band. <laughs> Uh, so how about we talk about United Nations Yeah, the, the, the debut album By the, the mysterious United Nations By the international body Yeah, um, so it's a very short record It, is, it does exactly what it says in the term When it comes to extremo um, It starts off with the spinning heart of the yo-yo Um, 
lobby. Lobby. Uh, it's just, it's so loud and full on, right? Um, it's a whirlwind start. Yeah. Lots of chops, mixing up the genre, nothing stagnates. The vocal processing on it is ever so slightly reminiscent of uh, Alec Empire oh. from Atari Teenage Riot. Uh, it's good, it's quite different, a little boxy but kind of effective and um, I think the mixes are overall a bit woollier than the um, the next four years mm-hmm. but I have to admit I think I kind of prefer them, um, it gives the record a bit more of a distinct sound and it feels actually a bit more underground, Yeah, do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, I like that this, it's got the same kind of, it's like Captain Midnight, it's got the same thing as that just, um, From Tomahawk Yeah, it's, it just drops a chorus at the end and you're, you're, you're out, yeah. you know, and it's like the best catches part of the song and you get one hit and you're you're done not to think that they're actually really taking a piss at the Beatles. The second song is Resolution Number Nine. Um, it's got that ascending riff, which I think is just so much fun, and then the descending sort of tremor a little bit. It sounds really apocalyptic. It's got a total tin of bees guitar tone, <laughs> you know. Um, it's a bit more straight ahead that one with some, yeah. with some really good riffs. Uh, vocal energy is really high in it. Mm-hmm. I, I appreciate the self-aware sort of sudden stop at the end because mm-hmm. it, it's doing this kind of crescendo build-up, and then it just literally somebody's just stopped the waveform mm-hmm. rather than having any kind of decay or delay or anything like resolution number nine that's how that ends as well um and the interpolate yellow submarine at the end that that's the exact uh, revolution yeah nine. yeah yeah that's <laughs> what i mean see but as, as the yeah we all live in a yellow submarine we all live in something something like that he says it towards the end but it's basically yeah another reason why not to copyright i guess <laughs> Possibly. um no sympathy for a sinking ship You know, it has that call and response quality that a lot of those kind of twin singer screamo bands had in the the, the early two thousands. Do you remember when that was like blood pillars, blood pillars and stuff? They, like that. Yeah, they. Yeah. I mean, they were one that did particularly well, but there were loads of them. Mm-hmm. Bands starting up with two singers with yeah. a sort of slightly different range, a different approach. So that's probably Daryl Palumbo doing the other vocal. Yeah, I thought that. We as don't well. know for sure, of course, but it's. Some of the higher guitar parts soaked in delay are a bit more ambitious in this one mm-hmm. in a slightly progier way. But it still maintains that sense of happening in a tiny club space. I, I think because of that twin vocal, because of that era of screamo, it really reminded me again of the 13th Note in Glasgow, mm. kind of low ceiling basement gig with wet walls and footprints in the roof. And I, I think it suits it, actually. Give it, It's one of the edgiest in their catalogue. Mm. It's, it's probably much much more of a straight-up hardcore punk song, but with, with some blast beats chucked in towards the end. And to me, when it goes melodic, it sounds a lot like Thursday, but that, I guess that makes sense, right? The shape of punk that never came. I really love this song, man. See the single palm mutant riff that begins the song? It, it continues throughout. Ready! 
like it's in the mix always, which is really cool. The production comes front and centre in mm-hmm. this one. Uh, the guitar absolutely swamps the recording with layers of noise and this really gainy fizz. It's an interesting technique, and I, I, I can imagine an entire concept record being done that way. Uh, it has an element of black metal lo-fi extremism yeah, to it. Yeah, I've got that as well. I, yeah. I, I mean that musically, not politically. <laughs> um, behind that wall of hiss, there's this deceptively chunky, well-produced song, which is a kind of bonus. You know, you're, you're actually, you're trying to peer through that saturation, you know, picking it out. It's like maybe watching a sort of Hollywood movie whilst the sun is reflecting off your TV screen. Mm. You're trying to kind of look through the noise and pick out the thing that's happening behind it. Um, I also just think that the, the minute 35 drop is a good nod to Converge. Totally, yeah. It's really ominous sort of melody, which is very Converge. It becomes a bit of a breather towards the end as well because it, it does slow down, which, which is probably quite a clever thing to do because this record is furious and my cold war is slower and a bit less punishing It's, it's more more conventionally metalcore, I think. I was going to say core. that, yeah, or like a screamy emotional hardcore thing. Mm-hmm. It's a sound that was really common in the early two thousands. Yeah, saw a lot of this kind of stuff. I think it's decent. It didn't it didn't grab my imagination. Jeff's vocals sounds really unhinged, which to me harkens back to early Thursday, which is maybe where he's taken that from. The guitar tone actually reminds me, particularly some of the guitar parts as well. It actually reminds me of the driving, mm-hmm. but just filthier. Uh, Model UN Diplomatic Immunity I love that <laughs> Just jump right out At the start That's that thing This one I, I don't really enjoy it, it sounds a little bit sloppy Sounds like a really Proficient high school band uh, I think the gainy second vocals in it are pretty naff and I think the riffs bit stodgy, bit underworked. I thought it was a low light on the record. I like the beat down towards the end. I think that's a fun part of the song. I, I do think this song's got a different energy though and it doesn't really work for me either. I just like the beat down at the end. Um, filmed in front of a live studio audience. <laughs> a bit... This is a bit different. Um, yeah. It's got that strummy acoustic start. It's a bit emotional and mm-hmm. blackgazy. Um, the the acoustic guitar just persists, giving the song a kind of distinctive feel. But I don't know something about the production. Maybe the acoustics actually a bit too high in the production. It feels a little bit tacked on. Um, they lean into the earnest singing on it. Probably, Jeff goes Jeff. <laughs> yeah, probably due to the acoustic providing that sort of melodic pretext. But mm-hmm. you know, the vocal lines in it, they, they they feel slightly improvised rather than as though he's properly workshopped them. Mm-hmm. You know, they're easy notes, they're easy melodies. It, 
it seems like the vocal line wasn't given a lot of thought. Mm-hmm. I'm speculating wildly, but it doesn't feel to me like they thought, oh, I could go in a more interesting direction. Mm-hmm. It's just very sort of by numbers. That's quite interesting you say that because... Jeff Rick is a, a, a vocalist with a really good sense of doing that kind of thing on Thursday, you know. I think for me, it's mostly, a song's mostly about atmosphere, you know, those, those sound bites from the TV and the hiss. It just, it's, it's not a heavy song, but the drums are heavy. And it, it reminds me of Struggle Takes a Square when they do melodic moments. And it's, it's more screamo, even though it's not really screamy, than, than I think it is anything else, to be honest. And then Revelations and Graphic Design brings us back to complete fucking chaos. Yeah, it's an angry one. The vocals mm. have a really added edge of bitterness in them. Um, mm. The odd lyric pokes through, emphasising that vibe as well, and it, it feels like a really punchy tune. Um, I think the riff at one minute arrives in a really big way. Yes, beastly that riff. However, I will say, listening to it on headphones, it's a strange production decision because it goes from really wide-panned guitar to this mega-loud, much brighter guitar right down the middle. And the problem is that that then competes with the vocal. Mm-hmm. It's a bit of a confused mix in, in, in a kind of stereo sense. I'm not sure I like that. Mm-hmm. I like the riff, but it just feels odd in headphones. I will say as well, see, by, we're on track eight, and it, it was at this point that I realised there has not been a single point in this album where the bass has grabbed me at all. There haven't been any standout lines, there ha- haven't been any big hooks, and the tone feels quite pedestrian. I feel like the bass isn't doing a lot of heavy lifting on this record. There's a lot happening in the vocals, the drumming's great, some of the guitar lines are great, the bass is a bit bland. Mm-hmm. Is this by any chance our bland? <laughs> I, you're, actually, I've never even thought about the bass, so that, that actually... <laughs> really, Cliff yeah. Burton yeah. all the way Cliff Burton all the way yeah <laughs> I mean we don't know who played bass in it so maybe it was just maybe it was Jeff cause maybe I, it was nobody maybe it was actually Ronald Reagan maybe it was seeing those pictures where like they're all wearing Ronald Reagan masks and maybe the thing well, one is of them, that Ronald Reagan yeah. was actually in this band maybe he's in all the masks clones of Ronald Reagan <laughs> that's just silly <laughs> <laughs> I keep living the same day I love how unsettling this song is I really like this one It's just a minute of noise and then it's good. Yeah, you know what? The crazy thing is, it, it feels like it might be on here as a wee experiment, but in fact, the total abandonment of conventionality makes it really stand out. The, the screamy vocal surges were really effective, and it kind of makes me wish they'd done more daft, inventive stuff because it's only a, mi- a minute long and I can't, I want you to hear more of it. I was sorry to hear it end so soon. There's a, there's a, there's a second vocal buried, buried away down in the bottom right channel somewhere, somewhere, and it sounds like Daryl Palumbo to me. It's really hard to tell that it's there, but if you listen to it, he- listen to it in good headphones, you can hear it right at the very mm-hmm. bottom, and it's pretty cool. I just like that it's just a repeating phrase. I think it's good. Mm-hmm. I, I wish they'd done a bit more of it. 
subliminal testing has got the nastiest, maybe nastiest intro in, on the record. Aye, it, has, that's, that's why it actually has a good bass tone as well It feels like it's getting a bit more adventurous But the track doesn't really click There are a few decent riffs on it, it It's a strange mix again That kind of relegates the drums And the drum beat in it is quite ploddy I, I, I didn't think it was a highlight um, And I'm not that sure that the tapping And the step up are all that successful Towards the end of the song either It does go a bit thrash punk at the end, for sure. Um, for me, this song's mostly about the vocal, different vocal layers. There's the backwards track vocals, which apparently, yeah. if you listen to it backwards, it says just to turn it background because you're you, you basically you listen to it the wrong way, so turn it background and play it the right way, which is quite funny. Very self-aware. Um, but yeah, uh, it goes kind of sludgy before it goes to like thrash. I, I like I like the ebb and flow of this song, to be honest, man. And then the last song. Or second last song, technically. Say goodbye to general figment of the yes, USS imagination. I mean, the, the title sounds like a botch title. Yeah. The, the drums pop more in this song, and it, it really doesn't mess around from the start. I like the dissonant drops and the reintroduction of those brighter guitar riffs at 40 seconds is, a, is, is excellent. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, there's weird riffs in there that give the tune a lot of personality, a bit of bite, and the vocals, I think, fit really nicely around what's going on, mm-hmm. uh, which is a good touch. It doesn't sound like it's everybody competing. It sounds like it's quite considered. Points for inventiveness, but the post-rocky saxophone interlude's a bit flabby. <laughs> um, I get that it's a it's it's a bit of a gimmick, mm-hmm. and it it could be fun, but there's something just flabby about it. Like it's been like we've got this idea, but we're not going to fully write it. We're just going to do it because it's a funny idea. That said, you know, the sound of the brass is really nice. Mm-hmm. It's a palate cleanser. We've been listening to a full raging album. To hear brass is, is quite refreshing. Um, it's got that 1980s New York kind of alleyway yeah. sax solo mm-hmm. thing to it as well. I think this project is obviously the place for these guys to fuck about with ideas like that. I'm curious <laughs> who in the band suggested it and how wasted they were. Mm-hmm. Um, and as endings go, I can kind of broadly get down with it. Uh, for me, the, the main riff at the start sounds like Mastodon. It's just huge, man. Um, and when it goes into the, the jazzy section with the actual, and I've written here, actual fucking saxophone, <laughs> um, there's loads of really. EFS. EFS, yeah. There's loads of really, like the guitar sounds that, that are bounced around the saxophone, and the mix are really nice. Um, just the tones, I think, are really good. And there's little snippets of, like, sort of fragmented guitars that kind of pop up and down, which are, which are quite nice. The drum just kind of drag the song along a little bit. Um, I can tell you who actually played the saxophone. It was actually some jazz, like some proper jazz guy. 
Billy Horn. It was Billy Horn. The sax, you mean the brass was played by a guy called Horn? Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah, and also the final thing and there's a hidden track, which is like 12 minutes and 50 seconds long. 13 seconds, uh, sorry, 13 minutes yeah. silence. Uh, and, and it, it ends it, with the sounds of cash register. I was going to say, it is exactly that until the, the cash, the, the till chime at the end. And it's actually, on the CD version, when you ripped it, I used to, the, the track was actually listed as ka-ching. I mean, yeah, I, I think it's a really interesting album. I think it's... It should probably be more talked about as a curio. I think mainly because there's a band that put a record out and didn't copyright it mm-hmm. and people don't know who wrote it and who played in it. And that's really interesting. It's like, I'll listen to this record. Who's it by? Well, I don't really know. Mm-hmm. And could, could it's, be. it's not copyrighted. So <laughs> yeah. if you want to go and release it, go and release it. You know, mm-hmm. put it in your movie for free. That's really fascinating. And I think that should be more of a widespread talking point. How good is the record? I don't think it's amazing. Uh, I think there were a lot of really good screamo and experimental albums around at that time. I think Converge's game was much, much higher and that's probably unfair to compare it to that. But it it certainly has lots of good moments on it. I'm a wee bit on the fence about it. Uh, I quite like the project. I think I would have preferred if the project had been a bit more political, as I said, rather than that kind of like cop-out, sardonic, you know, nihilistic Gen X thing. Um, So yeah... I dig it. There's a space for it. Some really good playing. There's some great moments. I would abdicate decision on it. We're not three of us here today, mm-hmm. but I'm going to do that anyway. <laughs> I'm not shitting on it at all. I'll probably, there's a couple of tracks that I'll probably listen to again. Do I think it's an unsung classic? Mm, I'm, I'm, ask me again at Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> I think, yeah, well, I do think it's unsung. I think the band are perhaps by design deliberately under the radar. And I think that through all the stuff that if, if you're aware of them through all the stuff that happened to them they're probably there's more of a legend as opposed to like a focus on the music and I think the first album's really good this came out when all the screamo shit was all that screamo shit was dying was gone uh, you yeah, know it did, um, right. so this is a bit of a throwback which is another reason why I like it obviously I think it goes in so well technically it goes in because there's nobody here to refute that oh I mean people can drop us a comment and see if they think or think <laughs> see what they think if you disagree with Mark, unsubscribe. Unsubscribe, yeah. <laughs> That's how you run a business. <laughs> Ka-ching! Ka-ching. <laughs> oh, we are so synced up. Eh? Ah, yeah, man. Four years and we're finally on the same page. So, you know what goes along with this? A nexus. A nexus. It feels like it's been a long time since we've done one of these. Ah, we, we don't do them as often anymore. Yeah. Yeah. A complicated series of connections between different things. So the Nexus this week was chosen by the the, the fabulous Mr. Kenny Bonella. Mr. Kenny Bonella. Regular contributor and oft outspoken man on the AAA Unsung Pass oft, group. Yes. One of the highlights, I would say. Mm-hmm. So he's picked Trade Union leader uh, and former miner Mick McGahey. Mick McGahey. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're from Canvas Lang, which you're probably not because you don't have electricity. Uh, <laughs> there's a there's a monument to him at the end of your high street. Uh, our band used to rehearse in Campus Lang. Ah, okay. Uh, in an abandoned warehouse 
on the floor above the Canvas Lang Orange Band, who you can catch in Glasgow <laughs> this coming <on> weekend. <laughs> this coming weekend, stomping about the streets, shouting at peeps. Um, okay, this is a Bobby Dazzler. I've got a good one. I've got a good one as well. You go first. Okay. Uh, so one of the members that is that is known to be in the nations now is Jonah Bear. Um, his sister is Vanessa Bear, who I believe roasted them before a gig. One time That's um, a hell of a support act Yeah Because she's <laughs> Bring somebody up on stage To slag you off Yeah I should do that <laughs> Fuck it It would be a festival <laughs> <laughs> She's a comedian Former Saturday Night Live alumni um, She was on the show For eight seasons Between 2010 and 2017 um, And together Jonah and her They both do a podcast Called How Did We Get Weird oh. Is it better than our podcast? I haven't listened to it Yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh, so her time, her time on on Saturday Night Live uh, crossed over with that of Bill Hader, who is now currently directing, writing, starring, and was the creator of a brilliant show called Barry, which if you haven't seen it, I thoroughly recommend. It is genuinely one of the best things I've seen this year so far, and it's went from being a half hour sitcom about a guy who is a hitman who decides to take acting classes and chip try to change his career to being something about uh, uh, one of the most horrible men <laughs> in the world. It's fucking brilliant. Bill Hader is fantastic in it. Vanessa Bear actually starred in one of the episodes in the latest season as well as a guest, which is pretty cool. Bill Hader's been in a bunch of films. He was in Superbad as uh, one of the cops alongside uh, Seth Rogen. Uh, and he also starred in a film called Year One, which was also starring Jack Black and Nico Serra. I haven't seen it. It's a Harold Ramis film. Um, but that also stars Juno Temple. Do you know who Jun- you don't know who Juno-, Juno Temple is? Do you? I don't think so. No. She's an English actress, but she's kind of most recent, most recently gained acclaim for her role in Ted Lasso, which is also a really good comedy. She's brilliant in it. She plays like a the wife or sort of the girlfriend of a footballer who ends up realizing that she's just amazing at marketing and. Yes, yeah, a, a fucking lovely story, man. You should watch it. <laughs> um, she's great in it. Um, she's the daughter of a director called Julian Temple, who's a documentary filmmaker, who began his career by directing the music video for God Save the Queen by the Sex Pistols. Interesting. Yeah. And to be honest, probably could have got here much sooner by saying United Nations ripped off the Sex Pistols artwork. But yeah, that would have been less interesting. Would that have been? His sister is Nina Temple, um, a British politician, British politician, and she was the last general secretary of the Communist Party of Great Britain, where she stood from January 1990 until its dissolution in November 1991. Trade unionist and former miner, Michael McGahey, was a fairly prominent member of the Communist Party of Great Britain. Indeed, he was a lifelong member, and after the party dissolved, he joined the Communist Party of Scotland, which he stayed a part of until his death, and that party itself dissolved in 2019. So, here we go. Alright, that's my turn then. United Nations album, United Nations, from 2008, has cover art by Jimmy Cotty, former member of the KLF. KLF are most famous for allegedly, probably burning £1 million on the Isle of Jura. The Isle of Jura, by the way, I think was chosen because it's where George Orwell wrote 1984. Okay. Or the bulk of 1984. However, the KLF had a lot of other pranks and <laughs> satirical initiatives. Uh, I'm I would say go and look them up, but I'll probably use them in future next eye because they're. Don't look them up then. <laughs> it's a real well. One that deserves a mention is when they trolled the Turner Prize, uh, presumably for being horribly elitist and pretentious, and almost certainly as some sort of commentary on the state of contemporary art. 
So this prank took the form of the KLF setting up the K Foundation, which in 1993 ran in parallel to the Turner Prize, but offered double the prize money, so £40,000, for the worst artist of the year. <laughs> uh, they actually had a series of TV adverts announcing the impending vote, so it wasn't cheap. Um, it just so happens that the winner of the Turner Prize that year also won the K Foundation Worst Artist Prize. Uh, that artist was Rachel Whiteread. Uh, the first woman to win the Turner Prize, I might add. Uh, she was famous for doing these plaster casts of everyday objects and spaces, from baths to bathrooms, you know, like full living spaces as well as these large objects. Um, in 1994, she made a concrete cast of an entire Victorian-era townhouse, removing the sort of superstructure, the, the walls and floors, etc., leaving this concrete representation of the interior. It, it obviously... Greatly divided opinion, uh, the council in that part of East London did their best to demolish it as soon as the temporary licence had expired. Despite protestations from the artist and the art world, uh, the council uh, described it as hideous and at odds with the spirit and aesthetic of London's East End. I would like to point out, actually, at this point, I think it's pretty fucking cool. I think her art is actually really interesting. I get how some people would look at it and go, well, that's a big fucking ugly shape, but... There's something fascinating about it. Uh, but I also think the KLS or the K Foundation's initiative was pretty cool as well. Both were artistic statements of merit, in my opinion. Uh, and although they ended up pitting two sets of artists against each other, I think that's fair game. You know, that was necessary to the statement and, and unacceptable. Um, now, Rachel Whiteread initially refused the, the K Foundation Prize, of course, which took the form of money that had been mailed out to journalists as an invitation, only to then be returned when they attended and nailed to a picture frame. Uh, but when the band, <laughs> when she refused to accept it, the band credibly threatened to burn it, given that they had previous for burning money. Uh, sh so she then agreed to accept it. None too pleased, she immediately released a statement given, uh, declaring that she was given the cash to charity. So, as I said, whereas Rachel Whitehead was the first female winner of the Turner Prize, the first female nominee was Milena Kalinowska in 1985. Uh, it was the second year of the award. Uh, as a curator and educator, she is also one of only two non-artists ever nominated. Uh, Kalinowska was born in Czechoslovakia in 1948, uh, following the Czech Spring of 1968 uh, and the subsequent violent Soviet invasion and repression the following year, she purposefully joined a tourist trip to London in 1970 and then claimed political asylum whilst uh, in London. Um, she was, now I don't know how this quite worked out, I couldn't really find this part out, but she was subsequently sentenced to three years in jail for, quote, dissident activities in Czechoslovakia, um, the distant activities basically entailed writing against the Soviet regime. She was also temporarily stripped of her citizenship until the time of the Velvet Revolution in 1989, which was shortly, I think it was about nine, ten days after the fall of the Berlin Wall. Now, talking of violent Soviet oppression, obviously we had the, the repression of uh, Czechoslovakia. Um, the Soviet invasion of Hungary in 1956 was similarly used to repress the burgeoning independence and reform movement that had sprung up earlier that year in that country. Now, that particular brutal military operation was strongly supported by one famous trade unionist, also the son of one of the founders of the Communist Party of Great Britain, a Mr. Mick McGahey. Mm -hmm. Mick McGahey was all about the Soviet repression of Hungary. His dedication to communist doctrine uh, nicely demonstrating the sort of inexcusable horror that that kind of bootlicking authoritarian ideology enables. 
I should add, the, the, the repression in Hungary cost at least two and a half thousand lives and tens of thousands of, of people had to go into exile. Um, revered by some as a working class hero, Megahe was a staunch and proselytising commie. As I say, he's already honoured with a monument in Cambus Lang, which is a fittingly grim surrounding for a man that uh, supported the communist regime. But the Scottish government has also repeatedly mulled over the notion of further honouring him in some grander manner for the work he did during the miners' strike. I'm sure there's plenty of nuance to the man. I don't know why Kenny's nominated him. I don't know if Kenny's a pure fist in the air like this guy was right on or as I know Kenny doesn't have much love for proselytising communist bootlickers I don't want to cause any offence but uh, as an authoritarian apologist and enabler hopefully many a pigeon shits on the statue of Mick McGahey should it ever appear Interesting Nearly your colour to the mask there Chris I mean, I, I, there's no more room in the mast for my colours. <laughs> <laughs> I've nailed them up there so many times. But yeah, there you go. So what are we doing next week? Next week is a special request mm-hmm. by myself, <laughs> but also courtesy of the bottomless trove of musical knowledge that is Ferruccio Quirchetti. And we are going to do For the Whole World to See by Death. Now that is Death from 1971, the proto-punk trio, not uh, Chuck Schildinger's metal band. The original death. Mm. And it's bloody good. I'm excited to hear it. Yeah. So Ferruccio will be bringing it big time, as he does. Nice one. Well, I'm excited for that. I genuinely am. I think it'll be good. Yeah. It's going to be a better, uh, totally uh, seminal band. Mm -hmm. So join us next week. Also, if you could share this with your friends. If you have friends. If you you don't have friends, get some friends and share it with them. Share it with your ma, share it with your granda, whatever. If you don't have friends, pay us. (laughs) <laughs> we'll give us friends. <laughs> You'll get access to the AAA Unsung page and you can make, can make friends there. Friends. Yeah. You can talk to Kenny about communism. <laughs> Take it easy, folks. Bye. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.